Good morning. We're going to jump right in. We are officially now turning the corner into the latter half of the Gospel of John. We have turned the corner into the latter half of the Gospel of John. If you recall the opening part of John, the opening half of John from chapter 2 to chapter 12, spans about 36 months of Jesus' public ministry. Three years, 36 months of his public ministry. And the final half, now that we've gotten to chapter 13, is going to cover maybe 36 hours of Jesus' life, his final hours um, on the earth. Now, chapters 13 to 17, as we referred to last week, has been collectively been referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse, his farewell discourse. That word discourse simply means uh, communication, discussion, talk, conversation. He is um, spending time with his disciples, uh, and he's doing some teaching and some communicating with them. Uh, and bear in mind that this happens during the Passover meal, right? This is happening during uh, the, what would what is called the Last Supper. And so they have gathered together in this way to celebrate the Passover meal, as many Jewish people have streamed into Jerusalem to do. And these are Jesus' final words. This is his farewell to his clan, to his tribe, to his squad, to his disciples, who he loves and have spent the last 36 months with. And in the farewell discourse, Jesus talks about leaving them. He talks about going to the Father, He's going to leave them, but he is going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to send the comforter, the paraclete, the, uh, the helper, so that they will not be left alone. He talks about being the vine, the true vine, and tells them how life and community must find its source in him, in connectedness to him. It ta- he, he, for the first time, refers to his disciples not simply as his followers, but his friends. He calls them friends. He warns them of how the world will treat him and how they will respond to him, but more so how they will respond to them in the days after his death. And then he prays for his disciples this beautiful, high priestly prayer, as it's called, where he prays for his disciples in the present, in the room, the 12 that he has chosen from out of the world, but not only them. He also prays for his disciples for all time. He prays for you, and he prays for me. Jesus prayed for you. And he prayed for me. We're going to zero in now on chapter 13. And we're going to go through verses 1 to 17. And this describes uh, an event. um, And Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. So we're going to walk through the passage. We're going to work through it and, and exegete it, as it were. We're going to go verse by verse. And then we're going to come back to look at this act of foot washing. And what it really signifies and it means for us today. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's unite our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you for just already a wonderful time of worship, of community, of communing with you and communing with one another. God, I pray that you would continue that as we hear from your word, as we open that together, God. Um, would you give us ears to hear, um, eyes to see you, hearts to know you in this moment. And Holy Spirit, would you do your work in each and every one of us so that we would receive what it is that you are giving us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's jump in. Verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
So this idea of his hour coming, this isn't something that's new. This isn't the first time we've heard this. We've heard this a number of times in John. If you remember back to um, chapter 2, one of his first words in his public ministry when he is at the wedding in Cana and when his mom, Mary, um, presents to him the problem that the party has run out of wine, this is what he says to her. And he says, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We see this again in chapter 7. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And again in chapter 8. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus, his whole life, his whole trajectory in his public ministry is catapulting him to this hour which he anticipates, this hour that is coming. So what is this hour referring to? We see this in chapter 12. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That hour is in Jesus' glorification, and ultimately his glorification comes about in his death. The hour is the hour of Jesus' death. Now, if you were tracking along, and if you've read through the book of John, and you've read through the last half, you will realize that Jesus has about 24 hours to live from this point and the point that he's crucified, 24 hours away from being nailed to the cross. Now, put your, put your heads in Jesus' frame of mind for a minute. What does that do to a man to know that, they ha- that he has 24 hours to live? Let me ask you that question. What would you do if you had 24 hours to live? What would you do? How would you spend those final moments of your life? Just feel free, jump in before I have to single somebody out. What would you guys do? Spend it with family. Thank you. Sorry? Cook and feed. This coming from Vidya is good news because I want to be invited to that. Vidya cooks a great roti. You would spend it with friends and family, right? How many of you would do that? Would spend your last 24 hours with friends and family? I Googled that and that to a person was the answer. I mean, among other things, you know, but for the most part, they would spend it with their friends and their families, with their loved ones. Look at what Jesus says. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Jesus has 24 hours to live, and they're not even a good 24 hours. You realize this, right? It's not like he can plan out every 24 hours and spend it exactly how he likes. The majority of those last moments in his life is going to be spent in front of Sanhedrin, being grilled by the religious leaders. He's going to be um, brought before Pilate, tortured, beaten by the guards. He's going to carry his cross to Golgotha, and then he's going to be nailed there for three hours or so. So it's not even a good 24 hours. Between now and the Garden of Gethsemane when he gets arrested, he's got maybe six, maybe seven hours to spend with those he loves, and that's what he chooses to do. I don't know about you, but that speaks to me more than anything else, Jesus' humanity, that he's like us, that in the same situation, he would do the same thing. He did the same thing that we would do, spending it with the people that he loves the most. Let's look at verse 2. 
During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Now, when some people have read this, they, they, they think, you know what, this sort of tells me that maybe Judas didn't have a say in the matter. Maybe he had no choice, you know. Maybe he was just the fall guy. Someone had to betray Jesus, right, in order for him to be arrested, in order for him to be condemned and then crucified and, you know, dead and buried and rose again from the dead. All of that needed to transpire by somebody, a linchpin, someone had to betray him. And so maybe Judas just drew the short straw. Maybe God just rolled the dice and said, might as well be Judas. The devil made me do it, right? But let's look at Judas's character. Chapter 12, verse 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? If you remember the situation is when Jesus comes into Bethany and um, Mary comes and anoints Jesus' feet with very, very expensive perfume called nard, and then she washes his feet with her tears. Judas is watching this happen, and this is his thought. Why was this not, stuff not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It's very interesting to me that Judas knows the exact price, going price of this perfume, right? Tells you a lot about where his mind's at. Verse 6, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas is not off the hook when it comes to his responsibility for what is about to transpire, his betrayal of Jesus. He is already greedy and deceitful and most likely living a double life, taking money from the purse. Think about this. Judas is one of the 12 disciples, right? He has spent three years with this group of guys. They know each other. They know their ins and outs, their comings and goings. And it's not like they can carry stuff where they go. He's not like amassing, you know, things, right? He's not buying, I don't know, my kids would buy like Pokemon cards. He doesn't have like a bunch of those or he's not like has jewels or things like that. What is he spending the money on that he's siphoning from the money bag? He's probably spending on stuff that for experiences, you catch my drift. So this is Judas Iscariot and his, his character is coming out. And so when the devil puts it in his heart. The devil is only fanning into flame what was already present. He's using the raw materials that is already in Judas' heart to do the thing that he believes is in his best interest. Now, take a moment and think about temptation, okay? So, when, when the devil puts this in Judas' heart, Judas is being tempted. He has not yet sinned. The devil is simply prompting Judas to go this route. It is the first step in the sequence of temptation. The early church fathers called it provocation, the initial idea. He is not yet guilty of committing the sin of betraying Jesus. 
And what I want you to be aware of is that, own, is that dynamic in each, and our, each and one of our lives. That there is a moment when we are tempted where it is the initial idea, it is the provocation. The best course of action is when that thing comes is to nip it in the bud. Is to ask God to make good on His promises and to provide you a way out from under, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Do you remember this when we talked about Bible memorization? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but if you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. In the moment of that initial idea, when the devil plants the idea of, of sinning in your head, recognize it and nip it in the bud by claiming God's promise that he will provide a way out for you from under it. So Judas is on the hook, right? He is the betrayer. This is a path that he has chosen for himself. In the next verse in chapter 4, I love, I love this verse for so many reasons. Um, and it's really like kind of geeky theological reasons. But I want you to follow me on this, okay? Let's look at verse 4. So it says, Jesus laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. The Greek word for this word, laid, uh, this term laid aside, is tithemi. So Jesus tithemied his outer garments, okay? Just hold that in your mind. If you go to, if we jump to chapter, tw uh, verse 12, it says, when he had washed their feet, he's done the deed, and put on his outer garments, this Greek word for put on is lambano. So he lambanoed his outer garments, so he tithemied, he laid aside his garments, and then afterwards he lambano, he put on his garments, okay? You following me? Let's look at chapter 10, verse 17. John tells us that for this reason, the Father loves me, Jesus, because I tithemi my life, that I may lambano it again. So because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Do you see what John is doing here? Remember that this, this guy is 90 plus years old when he's writing this gospel. He is still as sharp as a tack. He is drawing the parallel between Jesus' foot washing, the act of Jesus' foot washing, and the act of his death and his resurrection. He's drawing a direct parallel in line with the language that he's using. You don't catch that in the English, but in the Greek you would. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Do you not just love Scripture and the way God has orchestrated that? to be put together. Man, I love this stuff. So that's verse 4. Verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around. And I'm not going to say a lot about foot washing because we're going to move on and talk a little bit more about that later. But what I want you to know is this, okay? I spent 18 months living in the desert, okay? I know what desert feet look like. I was surrounded by desert feet for a year and a half, okay? I made friends with a man named Salman. My, my family and I, we were there so that we could share the love of God with the local people. I met a man named Salman who was a desert dog, 90 years old, okay? And I would go to his place every week and have a conversation with him. He and I would talk and chat. We would eat dates together and drink coffee. We'd just hang out. But this man had 90-year-old desert feet. So whatever you're picturing right now, I want you to double that and double it again in terms of how, how gross that could, would look. And that's Salman's feet. I love him to death. He had horrible feet. It's the truth. That's what Jesus is dealing with times 12. 
okay? Washing feet. You have to understand that in the, there's a culture of foot, watch, foot washing in biblical times, okay? There's a hierarchy. Washing feet is reserved for the lowest of the low. It's not a job that you go running after and be like, I want to wash people's feet. No, that never happened. It was reserved for the slaves. It was reserved for the lowest. It was always from the lesser to the greater. The lesser would wash the feet of the greater, always, always and, and that never changed. Now, keep this in mind. Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. He's washing the feet of all of his disciples, including who? Judas, the one who is about to betray him. I want you to keep that in mind as Jesus um, journeys through this, this scene, as we journey with John and Jesus through this scene. Verse 6. He comes to Peter. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, we don't see this in the English, but in the Greek, there is a tense called the emphatic tense. And so if you read it in the Greek, this is what it would look like. Lord, do you wash my feet? There is an incredulity here that Peter is experiencing because he just, he's very confused. He's confused and he's a little scared because this is not very Jesus-y behavior, okay? This is not normal Jesus activity, getting down and washing the feet of his disciples. Peter's heart is in the right place when he responds to this because this breaks with tradition. This breaks with norms in ways that it's hard for him to comprehend. And so he says, do you wash my feet? This is unacceptable, Jesus. This is intolerable to me. I should be the one washing your feet. But notice how Peter has not washed Jesus' feet while they're together. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand, obviously. You do not understand it now, but afterward you will understand it. This speaks of, um, there's this motif of misunderstanding in the Gospel of John. If you, if you read through it uh, and you notice, you'll notice that a lot of people, um, when they listen to what Jesus has to say, they're not sure what he means by it, and they typically misunderstand, and they take it to mean something else. This is something that happens throughout John, and so this is an instance of that. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. That's Peter's response. You will never wash my feet. Just picture it for a moment, okay? Because Peter just can't stand the thought of Jesus before him. Jesus is kneeling before Peter, right? He took off his outer garment. He wrapped the towel around him. He's got the basin of water. In order to wash someone's feet, you got to get down on your knees. And so Jesus is kneeling before Peter. The thought is intolerable to Peter. This is, the, this is Jesus, the Christ, whom he's confessed. This is the man that he has seen contravene natural laws, exercise his divine power all over the natural world. How can this man kneel before me, thinks Peter. And so he says, you will never wash my feet. Get up, Jesus. Do not do this. This cannot be. And Jesus responds in this way to him. He says to him, If I do not wash you, 
you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, this speaks to forgiveness of sin. This speaks to the fact for all of us that if we do not allow Jesus washing over us to purify us from sin and unrighteousness, that we cannot take part in his community. We cannot take part in his eschatological family. But Peter doesn't read that in this way. He's thinking, wait, Jesus is saying if I don't actually literally let him wash my feet, then he's going to cast me out? that I'm not going to be able to be part of what's happening here, but this is my club. These are my peeps. I spent three years following Jesus. I've given 110% to you. I, I don't, this is my identity. This is who I am. I don't know who I would be without being your follower. So no way. If that's the way it is, then yes, absolutely. Wash my feet. He says more than that. He says, not just my feet, but also my hands and my head. I love Peter. Good grief. He is just, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, every single time he'll ratchet it up to a 12, right? He's great at parties, let me tell you. You can imagine the disciples, right? They're probably like getting together, you know, Jesus washing feet. And they're like, oh, <laughs> hey guys, gather around. Jesus washing Peter's feet. It's going to happen. Just wait for it. Something's going to go down. It's going to be funny. Remember that time? Remember the time of that transfiguration? And Jesus came around, and then Moses and Elijah showed up, and Peter was like, hey, guys, let's make some tents for all of us to stay in. It's going to be awesome. Always ratcheting it up to a 12. And what does he do? Wash my body. Give me a bath, Jesus, is what Peter says. He doesn't know how to scale it back and tone it down. I love Peter. But you have to understand that, that Peter loves Jesus and he wants so much to be part of what Jesus is doing. And so he answers this in a way because it is from his heart, even though he's super awkward about it. And so Jesus responds in this way in verse 10. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. Now, I like to imagine that, you know, Jesus says this, you know, like in a very exasperated and sarcastic way, right? And like the way I talk to my kids. He says, well, the one who's bathed does not need to wash, Peter, come on, except for his feet, but he's completely clean, so get with it. But of course, that's not how Jesus speaks, right? Jesus is patient and gentle, and he just explains this in a way where Peter's like, right, I get it. I get it. But then he throws this in, in the, the last half of verse 10 and into 11. He says to Peter, you are clean, but then in the hearing of all of the disciples, he said, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, you got to ask yourself, why is Jesus saying this, right? Not just because he knew, but he said it in hearing of all of the disciples. Now, some of you might think, oh, he's just trying to, you know, stick it to Judas. He just wants to, like, get it in there. You know, you're going to betray me. I know. So I'm keeping my eye on you. I don't think that that's what happened with Jesus. I think when Jesus says this, it's actually a paramount act of grace. I think Jesus says this so that Judas can hear, and even, he probably even, like, cast a glance at Judas to say, 
come on, man. I know what's in your heart, and I know what you're about to do, but you don't have to. You can still turn this around. You can choose the right thing to do, Judas. Just listen. Change your heart. It's okay. You haven't sinned yet. The thought's there, but you haven't done it. So turn that ship around. I think Jesus is just, just pouring out his love for his betrayer, for Judas, in that moment, probably after having washed his feet. This is verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Right? He wants to make sure that they understand. He wants to leave no room for error. He is about to give them a command. He says, do you understand? And so he goes and explains Verse 13 and 14, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, who deserves respect and honor and praise, have washed your feet, have become low and become humble, and have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. He is telling the disciples, look at what I've done. Go and do likewise. You are to serve one another. You are to be, take the position of lowliness and humility. Because of you 12, you are in it together. I called you out of everyone in this world as my chosen 12. There is no lesser or greater amongst you. Please get that into your heads. There is no lesser or greater among you. You know why he tells them that? Because... There has been discussion amongst them. There has been a vying for power. It is very clearly written in the gospel. The disciples have been known to want to be the greatest amongst each other. This, just listen to some of what happens in the gospel. Matthew chapter 18. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They asked Jesus outright, which one of you which one of us is your favorite is basically what they're saying, right? Who's going to be the greatest out of the 12 of us? Tell us. We want to know. Mark chapter 9. But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Do you see the preoccupation here amongst the, uh, amongst the disciples? Luke 9. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Again, in Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. There is this desire to be more than others. And Jesus says, no. Amongst you, there is no lesser and there is no greater. And I want you to just to sit on this idea for a moment. That, okay, you know John always tells us, Jesus says that I do only what I see my father doing. I do only what he tells me to do, right? So Jesus does what his father does. Jesus washes feet. What does that tell us about the character of God? that we serve a God who washes feet. What does that tell us about him? Let's keep moving, 15 to 17. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
So this idea of knowing and doing, right? Even in Jesus' time, this is the longest journey known to man, right? That between the head and the heart and the hands. Not enough to know, you got to do. So that's what we're talking about, verses 1 to 17. So I'm going to bring some of that together. That's some of the things we've touched upon today in this act of foot washing, okay? So I'm going to lay out four things that foot washing is an act of, okay? So foot washing is an act of blank. If you want to take notes, here's a good time. Get out your pens, pencils, paper. Foot washing is an act of, and I'm going to fill in the blanks. Now, again, I said foot washing is not normal Jesus activity, right? By all indications, this is the first time, it is most certainly the last time that he has washed the disciples' feet. And up to this point, realize that Jesus has operated within the accepted norms of leadership, right? He's been the shepherd to the flock. He's been the teacher and the rabbi. He's been prophet, and to some even he has been king, although he hasn't been crowned king but they would love for him to be king, as we have heard as he entered in Jerusalem. Not only that, he has demonstrated his divine power over the world, uh, over the natural world. He has done miracles and he has done signs. He has walked on water. He has changed water into wine. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. He has fed the multitude with five loaves and two fish. Jesus has shown himself to be powerful in a way and above all others. Not only that, when he confronts the religious leaders, he stands his grounds and he, he stands his ground and he defends himself. He is strong when it comes to his interactions with the religious authorities. But from here on out, his message will take on a new quality. It will take on a new dimension because He offers himself up in humility, offers himself up in weakness, offers himself up in silence unto his own death. He will no longer defend himself. He will go to the very end of love totally and unconditionally. He loved them to the end, to the very last. John tells us that In Jesus, we have life, and life in all of its fullness. Jesus came to give life, but that means he has to give his own life. All of this is signaled by this parable, this act of washing the disciples' feet. And so the act of foot washing, first and foremost, is an act of submission. It is an act of submission. There's a humility here that Jesus puts on display. A humility to take the lower position. A humility to say that I am not greater than you in any way. But not only is it humility, it is humiliation. Because this spot isn't just lowly, it is the lowest of the low. It is humiliating for him to be in a position of inferiority to his disciples. And this mirrors the humiliation that he experienced on the cross. This this is the byword for Jesus, humiliation. 
his life has been characterized by this thing. It will take him ultimately to the cross. This is Jesus, pre-incarnate son of the Father. He was there at the beginning of creation. All things were created through him. And the humiliation he experiences is complete and utter. So let's bring it back to the, the scene where Peter sits before, sits before Jesus and Jesus kneels in front of him. So Jesus kneels before him. And you, Peter, Peter loves Jesus, right? There's no doubt about this. Peter loves Jesus. But he's loving Jesus in a worldly way. He's loving Jesus in a way that lacks humility. Follow me on this. He's basically saying to Jesus, when Jesus kneels before him, I cannot accept this way of loving you. You're kneeling before me, but I can't accept that. I want to love you in a way that makes sense to me. I want to love you in this way where you are above me, where you are like my Lord, where you are my master. I cannot love you if you are like this. That's what Peter is saying to Jesus. And so in that, it is ultimately a self-driven love. Think about his response. He says to him, when the thought of being cast out, when the thought of having no part of Jesus, he says, I can't, I can't not have you, Jesus. And so wash all of me. Not just my feet, but my hands and my head also, because that is what I, this is what I want for myself, to be loved by you. I want to love you in this way. Peter loves by force, not by submission. Think about that in your own lives, for the people that you love. It's easy to love the, the people that you love. It's easy to submit the ones that are lovable in your lives. But think of ones who are unlovable and untouchable. Does your life take on the character of humility and humiliation? Or do you want to force the way you love onto other people? The act of foot washing is first and foremost an act of submission. I want you to read from, this is, this is Andrew Murray, prolific pastoral writer, wrote hundreds of books. He wrote a book called Humility, which is amazing. And in it, he says this. The highest glory of the creature is in being only a vessel to receive and enjoy and show forth the glory of God. It can only do this if it is willing to be nothing in itself, that God may be all. Water always fills first the lowest places. The lower, the emptier a man lies before God, the speedier and the fuller will be the inflow of the divine glory. Jesus gave us an example of emptying himself, an example of humiliation. In the humiliation in the incarnation, even just becoming flesh and blood, this was God, Jesus, the Son of God, eternally in perfect co-unity with the, the, uh, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, who was there when the earth was formed, when the, the light and the dark were separated. He was there for all of it. To become flesh and blood like you and me, that is humiliating for God. 
and for Jesus. The humiliation of not being received by his own. He's come to save his own people, yet his own people did not receive him. The humiliation of being the Lamb of God led to the slaughter, silent like a lamb before its shear. This is the humiliation of Christ. And this is the humiliation, believe it or not, that he calls each and every one of us to. Maybe not in exactly the same way, but when it comes to representing him, when it comes to serving him, when it comes to displaying his love for the world to see, humiliation is part of it. Submission, foot washing is an act of submission. Foot washing is also an act of subversion. Subversion simply means this. The undermining of the power and authority of an established system or institution. I want you to think about our own human attitudes for a moment, right? When we think of, when we think of power, what do we think? Power is taken by force. Power is lorded over others. Power is the strong enslaving the weak. This has not changed since time immemorial, since the dawn of the earth. Power has always lorded itself over the weak. Jesus comes along and he says, no, there is power in lowliness. There's power in humility. There is power even in silence. And there's power in serving others. That is the message of the gospel. It is the world upside down. That is the subversive message of the gospel. Because Jesus is revealing a new way He's revealing in a new way who he is and who God is. If you remember, we talked about Isaiah's servant song, the prophet Isaiah last week, right? His servant songs where he talks about the servant of God. Listen again to how he describes this servant who is to come, who is going to lead the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And again he says, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. He goes on, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. And finally, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is not the way of the world. Foot washing is an act of subversion. We live in gospel that is upside down from the world. Foot washing is an act of symbolism. It's an act of symbolism. We have a lot of symbols, right? Baptism is one of them. There is the water and cleansing that happens in baptism. These are symbols of Jesus' death and resurrection, right? We reenact that in the Eucharist, or sorry, the, um, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, which we just observed, also called the Eucharist in some traditions. The bread and the cup or the juice or the wine, these are symbols. This is a reenactment, a remembrance of Jesus' death on the cross. And likewise, foot washing is a symbol, a symbol of Jesus' humiliation. It, help, it, it, it makes us think about the crucifixion and the humiliation of that. 
Now, the Lord's Supper is not explicitly mentioned in the book of John, although this event occurs in smack dab in the middle of the Last Supper. And so for John, the communion at table, the communion that happens when we um, partake of the bread and the cup together, it cannot be disassociated from the act of foot washing. There's a communion in, uh, that's lived out in foot washing that is um, parallel to that which we experience together in this way when we take communion together. And so I don't think we're, we're going to change and switch up and, and start washing each other's feet instead of having communion together. But what it says this is that even in the community, in the love and the bond that we share, in the act of communion, there is an act of foot washing or what that symbolizes in each and every one of our own lives that need, needs to take root in our hearts and in our lives and in it being expressed in that way. So communion at the table cannot be um, disregarded. It needs to be thought of in the same way as communion with others in, um, in the act of foot washing or in the act of loving each other. And so that leads to the last one. Uh, foot washing is therefore an act of supreme love. Foot washing is an act of supreme love. Now, love is a key term in the farewell discourse. In the, over, the, over the span of five chapters, it occurs 31 times. John uses this word 31 times. If you go to um, 1 John, um, one of his other letters, um, this whole book is about love. He's been, known as, he's been known as the apostle of love. So foot washing, yes, it's an act of servitude. It is what the slaves did. It's what the lowly did. But it was also a deeply personal and loving act, or could be. Because you would have wives who washed the feet of their husbands. You would have children who washed the feet of their parents. You would have disciples who washed the feet of their teachers. And so there's an intimacy, a tenderness. There is a connection that is translated in this. So again, imagine with me where Jesus is on his knees, okay? He's taken off his outer garments. He's wrapped, he's wrapped the, the towel around his, his waist. And he's taking a posture like this. And he's looking up into the faces of his disciples, of Peter, of Andrew, and John, Nathaniel, Judas, all of them. And there's this moment of intense, wordless interaction where he's just trying to pour out everything he feels in those last hours of his life to his disciples. Maybe he actually says a word. Maybe he, he speaks encouragement to them in the ways that only Jesus can because he knows them better than they know themselves. But there is this moment of supreme love where Jesus connects with them, and it is heavy. There are moments in my life where I try to connect with my kids in this way, where I speak to them my words of love, and, I, and, and more than my words, I, I just pray and hope that my presence and the time there, that they would feel the very weight of my love for them. The weight of my love for them. And Jesus has commanded, it's not just the act of foot washing, it's everything that comes with it. He's saying to the disciples, what I have done with you just now in this moment, you are to do with others. You are to love others the way that I love you. It is a command to wash one another's feet, to love one another. So my question for you is this, what does the humble love in foot washing look like for each of us? What does the humble act of foot washing look like for you? Jesus isn't asking you to go out today and find feet to wash. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying that there are acts of love he is, acting, he is asking you to perform in your lives. What are those going to be? And secondly, 
the question, how would a person respond to the weight of your love? Love isn't something that is intangible. It is very tangible. There is a heaviness to it, and people can feel it. Many of you here have felt the weight of someone's love. How would a person respond to the weight of your love if it had the weight of Jesus' love behind it? It might be right in front of your nose. Maybe it's like with friends, with family, with loved ones. Maybe it's right there. For some of you, it's like, yeah, it's easy. I love my family. They're super easy to love. Other of you are like, no way, Kevin, not a chance. I am not going to love the people around me. But maybe it's right there. It's under your nose. Maybe you have to go out looking for it. You know, we talk about joining serve teams and life groups as a way to connect. Maybe joining a serve team or a life group is not about connecting, but it's offering yourself in love to one another. There's something in you that God wants you to share with others. There is a love that only you have for someone else. Maybe, that, maybe you're going to find expression in that by joining a serve team or a life group. I don't know. But it's there. There's an action. There's something for you to do. There is a love that you have to give that is symbolized in the act of foot washing. I'm going to finish with this. We're going to jump ahead to John chapter 13, verse 35, because I think it, it wraps up what we want to talk about here really well. It says this. Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we go into the world and we represent him, his humility, his lowliness, his humiliation, even in some ways. And by showing that forth in our love, people will know that we belong to him. And when they know that we belong to him, they are going to want him all the more. So we are going to respond by singing yes and amen. And when we do that, remember that your yes and amen to God today is to say, I will love as you first loved me. And God will say yes, yes and amen to that in you. And that you can claim the promises of his grace, of his mercy in his salvation. Let's pray together. Father, I mean, words are hard to use to, to really truly express the depth of our, our love for you and, and who you are to us, God. We, we thank you for your son and that he lived his life in a way that put your love on display from beginning to end, that he walked the path of serving, that he walked the path of lowliness, of humility, of humiliation even, to the point unto death. The very Lamb of God led to the slaughter. God, as we go out into the world, help us to remember the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, how he loved others, so that we too can love others in that way. And when it comes to foot washing, God, teach us what that means. What is our act of foot washing in the world? What are you calling each and every one of us uniquely to? God, speak to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. We want to live our lives fully for you, to put you on display, display to bring you glory. Yes and amen, Lord. Hear us in Jesus' name.